Please stand with me as we read scripture from Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you, as always. We are glad that you have joined us on this Good Friday. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege to open God's Word with and for you tonight as Sheila read it for us. So one of my favorite Holy Week traditions is to watch the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. I just watched it last night, actually. I'm wired in such a way that those two hours of film help me really feel the weight of Jesus' love and sacrifice in a way that other things cannot. It helps me to better see and understand the offense of my sin and to see the unmatched grace and mercy of God. As an artist, I am struck in particular by the artistic decisions that Mel Gibson made in the film. Decisions that let me know that this film may have been in many ways an act of worship for him and a means by which he worked through the significance of his own sin. And here's what I mean. If you have seen the movie, there's a close-up shot in the movie where the hand of a Roman soldier places a giant spike upon the hand of Jesus. Then in slow motion, the soldier's other hand, now holding the hammer, drives the spike into the hand of Christ over and over and over again. As the director of the film, Mel Gibson decided that the hand that would hold and drive the nails would be his own. So it is his hand that you see crucifying Christ. And he was asked about this decision when people discovered that, and he answered this way, I am first in line for culpability. It was me that put him on the cross. It was my sin. So for whatever one thinks of Mel Gibson, his understanding of the gospel, at least as demonstrated by that filmmaking decision, is an understanding that everyone who comes to believe in Jesus must come to. And that understanding is this. You and I are the real reason that Christ died. In essence, it was our hands that threw the punches, swung the whip, and drove the nails. It was our mouths that shouted, crucify him, and that mocked him, and that spat in his face. You and I did these things. In that, our sin made those things necessary. 
as brutal as those last hours of Jesus' life were, they were actually likely not what Jesus most agonized over, and they do not represent the true horror of the cross. Though the physical aspects of the cross tends to be where we focus, have you noticed that the Gospels don't share many details surrounding the physical aspect of Jesus' suffering? Rather, the Bible uses pretty nonspecific words like beaten, scourged, crucified. The fact is that most of the details that we have about the cross are not from the Bible, but from history. We don't get the details that we see in film and in paintings and in statues from the Bible. And it is this same history that tells us that approximately 30,000 people during the time and the place of Jesus Christ experienced what Jesus did physically speaking. The Romans crucified people all the time, including, by the way, the man to the left and the man to the right of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? that the gospel writers give more detail about Jesus being mocked and what was said than they do his physical sufferings. Well, why do you think that is? I do not think that it is to minimize the physical suffering, which was horrendous, rather to magnify the true horror of Jesus' passion. Horrors that cannot be depicted in statues or paintings or film. The very same horrors that we sang about just a few minutes ago. Do you remember? Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. So tonight we are going to consider not only some of the what's of the cross, but some of the why's. What exactly happened when Jesus went to the cross, and why did he need to do it? We find a major why in the first half of verse 13. It reads, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I would argue that most of the world, including, by the way, many Christians, do not understand really what their biggest problem is. We don't really believe that we need saving. And if we do, we don't really know what it is that we need to be saved from. We don't believe that we cannot ultimately save ourselves or fix ourselves. And we don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can. And yet, the Bible answers each of these misguided ideas with one simple declaration, and we just read it. We are all born dead in sin. That is our biggest problem. That is what we need to be saved from. And that, my friends, is the why of the cross. 
Listen again to verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh is who you and I were. But it is no longer who we are if we are in Christ. It is the worst of news juxtaposed with the very best of news. Friends, when Adam and Eve sinned way back in Genesis 3, having disobeyed God, do you know that death came into the world? Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And because of their sin and their disobedience, death was and is passed on to everyone born of man. That's all of us. So can we agree that that is our biggest problem? Not government, not relationships, not our culture, not money, or whatever else we might be struggling with or believe to be afflicting us. See, the thing is we're hyper aware of physical death as as human beings, but I think in many ways we are blind to spiritual death. Because spiritual death is more difficult to see, and it is harder to identify than physical death. And do you know why that is? Because dead people don't know that they're dead. And what a dead person needs above all else is two things. The cure to whatever it is that killed them, and a new life to replace the one that they had. And dead people cannot provide either of those things to or for themselves. Dead people can do nothing. And yet, that is who we are or who we were if we are in Christ. According to these passages, if you are in Christ, your trespasses, your sins were, past tense, forgiven on the cross. And how many trespasses according to verse 13? All of our trespasses. And how many of your trespasses were in the future when Jesus Christ died? All of your trespasses. Past sins, present sins, and future sins. And in addition to being forgiven, the record of debt that you and I owed God was dealt with on the cross. And what happened to the debt that we owed according to verse 14? It was canceled. It was nailed to the cross. And if you are in Christ, 2,000 years ago, all your sins were forgiven. And all of your debt was canceled. And that means that as Christians, we mock Jesus Christ when we live as though our sin has not been dealt with in full. 
We mock him when we live as though we still owe God a debt. Now, some may use confession booths to take care of their sin. Others may use communion, and others will just simply beg God to forgive them when they sin. But whatever we do to try and make amends with God, we do because we don't really believe that it is finished. We don't really believe it. We don't believe that he forgave all of our sins. He forgave sins up to this point, but going forward, I've got to be able to do some things to take care of it. Christian, hear me. When we sin, we ought not work or strive or ask God to do for us what he has already done in full in Christ. Rather, when we sin, we agree with God that we have, recognizing that we have done our wrong, that our sins matter, and that they are and were offensive to him. And then we praise him, and we thank him, and we worship him for forgiving us all of our sins in Christ. And then finally, we ask him and we trust him to transform and change our hearts, our minds, and our behaviors by his indwelling spirit. Making us more and more into the image of his beloved son. Friends, Sin and death are what we needed to be saved from, but only Christ could do it. Why only Christ? There's a reason. Because only Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. He alone was born into this world both physically alive and spiritually alive. Like us, Jesus was born of a woman, but unlike us, Jesus was born of a virgin. And unlike us, his father is not Adam. God is. And that means that sin and death, which was passed along to you and I and everyone else born of man by Adam, was not passed along to Jesus. He alone was not born dead in sin. And then Christ alone lived a sinless life and as such was uniquely able to satisfy the just demands of a holy God. And God's wrath for sin fell fully on his perfect son who became sin for us. And in one just and merciful act, all sin was judged on the shoulders of Jesus. He was the final sacrifice for sin. Thousands of years of sacrificing animals, and it was done and finished in the cross of Christ. And Christ's righteousness and perfect sacrifice, having fully satisfied God's wrath, means that all who come to him by faith are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And that means that God sees you and I as though we lived a perfect life too. Sin needed to be dealt with. The debt 
that we owed needed to be canceled and death itself needed to be killed. And you and I are not capable of doing any of that. But Jesus was. We are not capable of saving ourselves because we were born in sin and we were born dead. Born in sin means that we're incapable of pleasing God on our own no matter how good we think we are. He does not judge on a curve. And born dead means that we are in need of a cure to what killed us and of new life. The dead do not cure themselves and they don't raise themselves to the newness of life. Christ alone, my friends, has the cure for sin and death, and Christ alone is the only one that has new life to offer you and me. According to Scripture, the wages that we all owe for our sin is death. That's the payment. And Jesus hung on the cross to pay that debt for us in full, and to defeat death. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where is your victory? Here's why that matters. Here's why it matters that when Christ hung on the cross to pay the debt for us in full, that he defeated death. If Jesus did not defeat death on the cross and cancel our debt and forgive every sin, then the spiritual life that he gives in his resurrection could not be eternal. Because as soon as you and I sinned, and we would, we would die again, right? If sin is still in play for you and I, so then is his consequence. But if death was defeated, if our debt was canceled, and if our sins were forgiven in full on the cross, and all of that happened, and all of that is true, what then stands against us? What then is left to kill us, spiritually speaking? Sin's consequence, death itself, has been put to death in Christ, and its wage has been paid in full. Your enemy is dead. And so life can be eternal. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said of Jesus. In Christ, my friends, all our sins have been taken away, no longer to be seen, no longer to be remembered, so that the life that he offers us in his resurrection can be and is life eternal. It is eternal life because the only thing that could steal our life is dead. Now we'll talk more about that eternal life on Sunday. As a famous preacher once said, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this of God. For our sake, he, that is God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This idea is what Christians often refer to as the great exchange. Jesus was mocked so that we might be glorified. He was scourged and beaten so that we would be healed. But do you know that the 
horror of the cross goes beyond the punches and the spittle and the thorns and the whips and the nails, as horrible as those things are. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22 when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's what that means. In Jesus' cry, he is expressing the agony of absolute sin. All the sins of those who would believe were put upon his shoulders. And in his cry, he is also expressing absolute abandonment. That in his hour of greatest need, for the first and only time in all of eternity, God the Father abandoned the Son who had become sin for us. And that, my friends, is what makes hell, hell. The abandonment of God's presence. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we could have everlasting, intimate fellowship with him. The curtain of the temple that separated man from God was torn in two from top to bottom, signaling our ability to boldly come into his presence through faith in his son. And not just for the Jews, which Paul calls the circumcised, but for the Gentiles called the uncircumcised as well. That's what verse 13 is talking about. Both Jew and Gentile can come boldly before God through faith in Christ. The circumcised and the uncircumcised. Finally, on the cross, Jesus defeated sin so that we might only know righteousness. He triumphed over evil rulers and authorities, that is Satan and his demons, so that we would only know victory. He was condemned by God so that we could be set free and he experienced death so that we could have eternal life in him. In all of that and more, my friends, lies the true horror, but also the magnificent glory of the cross of Christ. In all of that and more lies the what and the whys of what we call Good Friday. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the power of the gospel of your Son overwhelms us. My voice is hoarse. What kind of love causes one to bear the blame of another, though he has done no wrong? What kind of mercy withholds punishment from one's enemy, though they are guilty? What kind of grace grants forgiveness to those who have not asked for it and life to those who do not deserve it? Only you, God. Only you. There is none like you, and we give you all the praise and the thanksgiving and the worship that our bodies, minds, and souls can muster today. Father, would you see the intent of our offering and be pleased with it? Would you stir our hearts for the person of your son and his sacrifice? Would you give us eyes to see the full extent of his suffering on our behalf and be moved to live for him in return? Help us, God, to rest in our new identity in Christ and his sufficiency on our behalf. Let us live in the freedom that his salvation provides and declare the good news of Jesus, our King, to a dead and a fallen world. We glorify you tonight, our God and Father, for the gift of your Son. We praise you, Jesus, for being born to die and to live again in us. 
And we thank you, Spirit, for filling us with all that you are. Transform our lives, Lord, and the lives of those around us for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.